0: I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Well, we are certainly living in unusual times with the coronavirus pandemic and all the quarantines going on. A lot of questions are being raised for churches to wrestle through and families to wrestle through during this time, and so I'd like to dedicate this podcast to discussion of such questions. The pandemic is certainly changing a lot of things. Last Monday, I turned 40, and because of stay-in-place requirements, my wife hosted a surprise Zoom birthday celebration instead of the actual birthday party that she had been planning for some time. About 20 people logged on, and they sang Happy Birthday, which didn't really go very well but was pretty funny. Uh, But it was a, a really nice, brief chance to see a lot of friends and family since we couldn't have the party that Becky had originally planned. But you know what we didn't do? We didn't try to eat together. One of the questions that I've seen bantered around on the internet with relation to the church is whether or not during this time when we can't meet together as churches, should we observe the Lord's Supper in our homes attempt to do some sort of communion service virtually you know i completely understand on one hand the underlying desires that fuel churches who are encouraging their congregation to celebrate the lord's supper at home virtually during this period of quarantine we we miss being together the lord's supper is an important element that christ himself prescribed for corporate worship And especially if your church celebrates the table frequently, like our church does, not observing it for an extended period of time is weird. It's uncomfortable. I get it. But I believe virtual Lord's Supper is actually impossible. And here's why. Physical togetherness is essential to what the table communicates. I've seen some people online say that the purpose of the table is to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and that this can be done virtually through technology. And of course, it's certainly true that the table proclaims Christ's death. That's what 1 Corinthians 11:26 26 says. And if that were all that it did, I might agree that this can be done virtually. However, proclaiming the Lord's death is not all that the table does. In fact, I would argue that it's not even primarily what the table does. Many things proclaim the Lord's death, some of which can be done inside or outside corporate worship, when the church gathers, or in other contexts. Preaching, teaching, scripture reading, song lyrics—each of these things can and should proclaim the Lord's death. And the table does, too. But the table does far more than that. The table uniquely pictures and nurtures the communion that we as the body of Christ enjoy with Christ as a result of the Lord's death on behalf of those who believe. Paul clearly states this in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, where he says, "...the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ?" The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The word translated participation there is the term koinonia, which means communion. Because of Christ's death, because of his broken body and shed blood for the forgiveness of sins, those who believe are united to Christ and thus experience true communion with him. But not only that, believers who are united to Christ enjoy communion with each other as the body of Christ as well. And this, too, is uniquely communicated in the observance of the table. Paul says so in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, partaking of the one bread is an essential part of the picture of communion shared by the body, and this is only possible with physical presence. This is exactly why when Paul returns to discussing the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he repeatedly refers to when you come together. Verse 17. Verse 18. When you come together as a church, verse 20, when you come together, verse 33, when you come together to eat, verse 34, when you come together. This physical togetherness is fundamentally essential to the drama of the meal. The supper pictures communion of the body exactly through the physical embodied acts done around the table, especially partaking of the one bread. And these embodied acts, the very essence of the observance, are impossible without coming together physically. And so the corporate gatherings of the church are fundamentally different from other times when a church is not gathered physically. In fact, in this context, Paul explicitly contrasts eating the Lord's Supper when we come together as the church with eating in private homes. He does that in verse 22. They're not the same thing. Because when we eat privately in our homes, we are not gathered as the church. And, and the table not only pictures communion of the body through the Lord's death, it also enacts that communion through the physical actions. This is a biblical memorial. The Greek word is anamnesis. A biblical memorial is a ritual reenactment of a spiritual reality so that those who participate are shaped by that reenactment. A perfect example of this in the Old Testament was the Passover. Passover was a corporate worship service that enabled God's people to literally reenact God's deliverance of his people in the exodus from Egypt. That's why God calls it a memorial. He wanted his people to regularly observe this memorial, including physically acting out various aspects of the first Passover, so that they would remember his deliverance of them, and perhaps even more importantly, so that they would be shaped by that remembrance. As they reenacted the first Passover. And then, of course, 1500 years later, while observing the Passover himself, Jesus Christ established this similar reenactment and commanded his disciples, Do this in remembrance of me. This new Christian memorial service really serves the same function for the church as Passover did for Israel. It shapes Christians by a remembrance of Christ as we physically reenact his broken body and shed blood, and as we physically embody the communion accomplished by his death. And this is also why Paul specifically condemns divisions within the body in this context. Paul calls observance of the Lord's Supper while there are divisions within the body, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Why why is that unworthy? Well, because observing the table while there are divisions destroys the very image that the table is meant to communicate, communion of the body. So in other words, we shouldn't observe the symbol of communion when there is no actual communion. Now, I'm thankful for technology, especially during this unusual time when churches are unable to meet for a while. I'm thankful that it allows us to stay somewhat connected and that, for instance, I can provide resources for our church families to read scripture and sing and listen to a recorded sermon at home. But some things technology cannot accomplish. And since physical togetherness is inherently part of what the Lord's Supper is meant to communicate... I believe it would be a mistake to try to replicate the table virtually through technological means. In fact, you can't. You can eat and drink. You may even be able to proclaim the Lord's death. But you can't have communion without coming together. Instead, let's long for the day when our churches will be together physically again. And at that time, let's display our deep joy of renewed communion with one another, centered on Christ— By using the most beautiful picture Christ has given us to do that, his table. Well, I mentioned a moment ago that I'm providing services for our church family so that each family at home can read scripture, can sing, and then our pastor pre-records his sermon to listen to. All of the hymns for our hymnal, Hymns to the Living God, are available as free downloads at classichymns.org, and I'd invite you to uh, go there and download those hymns if you're looking for resources to use with your own family. And additionally, we've prepared audio and, in some cases, video piano accompaniments of many of the hymns for Hymns to the Living God And so I'd encourage you again to visit classichymns.org where you can download some of those resources as for a time we are stuck at home and cannot gather as the church. This week is Holy Week, our celebration of the death of Christ leading up to Sunday, the celebration of his resurrection. One of the things that I'm most going to miss about gathering as a church during this time is that our church each year holds a service we call Facing the Cross— which is simply a service of scripture readings and hymns centered on the last few days and death of Jesus Christ. Well, since we can't meet for that service, which is one of our favorites of the year, I have prepared resources to help people who would like to observe this service at home do so. If you visit religiousaffections.org, you can find a post there that details the different resources that I've provided, including audio recordings of the scripture readings, piano accompaniments for each hymn, a downloadable service order, and you can even download the service order and read the scripture passages for yourself and sing the hymns. But I hope that this will be a blessing to folks as we remember the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And speaking of worship at home, I would highly recommend that you use this time to establish good patterns of family worship in your home. One of the great blessings that we have during this time is that we're spending more time at home, and I would suggest using this time to establish some patterns and habits of family worship. Maybe you have practices like this already established. If so, great. Enjoy this time to continue to disciple your children and worship together as a family. But if you've never established regular times of family worship, now is a great time. And I want to highlight a few ways that you can do this, a few tips to help you establish good routines of family worship in your home. Over the years, the order of how our family has included various elements and even what elements we've included in family worship has changed. And I'll mention some of the different ways that we've done it in our family, But three elements have always been part of our family worship, and I think always need to be a part of worship, either in the family or the church. And that is scripture reading, singing, and prayer. If all you manage to do are those three things, then you have done well. You don't need an hour-long service with a four-point sermon, but your primary goal in setting aside a few moments each day for focused, Bible reading, singing, and prayer as a family, is to give your children a love for Scripture and the great hymns of the faith, modeling for them what a reverent approach to God is like and how to commune with Him, listening intently to what He says and responding to Him with hearts and voices. The most important thing is that you demonstrate to your children the importance of hearing from and speaking to God. The Bible reading itself could take a number of forms. If all you do is open your Bible and read a chapter, again, you've done well. With younger children, you might decide to use a children's Bible of some sort. But remember that the tone of those kinds of Bibles and the pictures included in them, these things shape your children just as much, or perhaps even more so, than the content. So be careful to choose Bibles that present biblical content reverently. There are also a number of different factors that can influence what passages you decide to read. Often, our family has simply read straight through the Bible storybook that we're using. Or if you know the passage your pastor is planning on preaching from in the upcoming service, read that passage at least once during the week. It's a wonderful way to help prepare your children to listen to the Sunday sermon. If you have older children, you could organize your daily personal Bible reading together and then read and discuss one portion of what you all read for the day. Or you might just decide to begin with the book of the Bible and just read one chapter every day. What's important is that you give attention to the reading of Scripture with your family. Second, we always take time to sing as a family. Singing is one element of our family worship that's easiest to do, no matter the age of the children. Sitting still and listening are often difficult for younger children, but children of all ages love to sing. And and few things shape us more profoundly, especially young children, than what we sing. And not just the words of what we sing, but also the music itself. Singing is a significant way to practice right affection for the Lord, and and, and through that, nurture the right kinds of affections within our children, even before they can intellectually comprehend the theology they're singing. When our children were very young, we simply chose one or two hymns we wanted them to be learning. And as they grew older, each person in the family chose a favorite hymn to sing, As our children have learned to read, we've begun to use hymnals. Uh, We often have a hymn of the week that we sing every day during that week in order to learn it even better, along with singing straight through all the hymns in our hymnal. Maybe you're not musically inclined or accustomed to much singing. Do it anyway. Your singing doesn't have to be perfect. Just the act of singing together as a family will reap many rewards. And again, if you visit classichymns.org, you can find some piano accompaniments which might help you sing if you're not musically inclined. And then we conclude our time of worship with prayer. Most often I lead the family in prayer, but if any of the children ask to pray, I always let them. When you have younger children, keep your prayers short and increasingly lengthen them to help them learn to focus. Family prayer time is a wonderful opportunity to bear the burdens together of church members and to help your children see the joy of answered prayer. Those three elements— Bible reading, singing, and prayer are, in my opinion, essential. If you've done those three things, you've done well. You could do other things, discussions of the scripture passage. I encourage families to use catechisms, to do Bible memory, uh, to read a devotional book or a doctrinal book. But if you simply read scripture, sing, and pray, you've done well. I mentioned a moment ago reading a devotional or doctrinal book with your children. I highly recommend reading to your children during family worship and other times during the day. By far, the book that I most highly recommend for middle elementary age and older is Big Truths for Young Hearts, Teaching and Learning the Greatness of God by Bruce Ware, published by Crossway in 2009. This is an excellent introduction to biblical doctrine, The sections to read are short and manageable. There are questions that stimulate discussion with your children. I highly recommend this book or other books to use with your family uh, during family worship or at other times. And then finally, you can use your times of family worship to help prepare your children for Sunday worship. We're not able to worship together as churches on the Lord's Day right now, but that day is coming soon, and so use this time when we are at home to prepare your children for corporate worship. I've already mentioned a couple of ways that you can do this. Reading the passage that your pastor plans to preach or singing songs that you know your church sings can be a great way to prepare your children. I also regularly use language, especially with younger children, that helps them see the connection between what we're doing during the week in our family times of worship and what happens on Sunday. It might be as simple as, remember to sit still and listen to the Bible, just like we do on Sunday, things that help your children see that connection. One important thing that we've done since our children were very young is to use this time at home to teach them how to whisper, a skill that they need to master for Sunday services. Another thing we've done during certain seasons of our family life is to model our family worship after our corporate worship within the church. I do this not only because the order of our church's worship service has a gospel logic to it, which is important for us every day of the week, but also because it instills habits in our children and prepares them for our weekly worship services. And this is one of the benefits right now as we gather on the Lord's Day in our living room on the couch and we worship together because we can't worship as a church. We are practicing for when we are able to gather again as churches on the Lord's Day. Often people will ask, how long? How long should times of family worship be? Well, really, how long you gather is not the most important thing. What is most important is that you gather regularly. If this means you can only spend 10 minutes before bed reading a chapter from Scripture, singing one song, and offering a short prayer, then, say it with me, you've done well. But I would highly encourage you during this unusual time in the church's life, when we can't gather as churches, Use this time to establish healthy family worship patterns in your home. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. my blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.